Hello, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. I'm Zach Diamond. I produce and occasionally co-host the podcast. And I wanted to let you know that this episode on trauma-informed teaching contains some topics that may be emotional or even triggering for some listeners. It's definitely full of great information and valuable discussion, but if you're not in a place right now to listen to a heavier episode, then maybe wait on this one. And when you do listen, I'm sure you'll find it interesting and informative. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 17 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm joined here with co-host Kate Gaskill. Hey, everyone. Hey, Kate. I'm also joined by Monty. Monty is has been on the podcast before. I've worked with Monty for a few years now, it feels like. She's a seventh grade science teacher down in Florida. I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast. She has one of the most interesting and exciting perspectives on education and is frankly one of the best educators I've seen in action. How are you doing, Monty? I'm doing good. Good, good. Good to have you on. So um, today we have an extremely interesting and frankly heavy topic. Uh, we wanted to spend some time today talking about trauma-informed teaching, uh, both in general and in a modern classroom. And part of the reason that we chose to talk about this issue today and sort of leading into the holidays is because as educators ourselves, we always saw that some of the toughest moments for our students experiencing trauma was always before the holidays. Naturally, trauma often has to do with or is connected with families and home environments and it was easy to take for granted that the holiday break was an exciting time or a time to rest. And that just wasn't the case for many of the students that I taught. And I know the students that Monty and Kate are teaching or have taught. And it was, frankly, a, a reflective time for me when I started teaching in the classroom to sort of reorient to the moment and understanding that holidays just aren't that easy. Uh, for students. And it was a time to be sensitive and understanding of the challenges that students were going to face and the challenges of not having a safe space like a school building to be surrounded by during really challenging circumstances. And it's obviously even more pronounced um, during a time like this when students, families, the whole world is facing a pandemic and trauma is only more challenging than it's ever been, certainly during my time in education. So I wanted to start there. And just kind of hear the experiences uh, first of you, Monty, you know, both generally around working with students with trauma and also the sort of connection to the holidays in the moment. Can you share a little bit more around your perspective about that and just generally teaching and supporting students with trauma? Yeah. So it's actually very interesting that we're having this conversation because at the school that I teach at this year, I teach uh, way more students with trauma than I have in the past. And so one of the things that I really had to do at the beginning of the year was I had to go in with a different perspective of, you know, where my kids were. Um, because originally at the beginning of the year, I went in with my perspectives from DCI where I was last year, where, you know, we had kind of a mixed level of, you know, students from all over. But this year I teach pretty much students who are um, in poverty and students who come from extremely um, rough backgrounds. And so one of the things that I really had to do at the very beginning of the year was I had to focus way more on building relationships with them because these kids did not trust teachers. And I remember being in professional development over the summer, and this was something that they told us a lot. They were like, you're going to have to work hard to build relationships. These students are used to teachers walking out on them. They're used to teachers, you know, not caring. And so I really focused my first couple weeks of school of really trying to get to know every single student so that they could see that I cared about them and that I really wanted what was best for them. And while I have done that in the past, it seemed way more important this year because I could tell right off the bat that they were like, okay, well, here's this lady. Why, why should I do anything for her? Um, and I just wasn't used to that type of response from a group of students. So it was a very interesting perspective um, that I had to start off with. And over the course of the last couple of months, um, I believe that my students are very much in a place now where they see that I care about their education and that I want what's best for them. 
but they also know that if they're having a, a bad day or things are not good at home, that I'm not going to pressure them and that I'm not going to, you know, be one of those teachers that is super hard on them of like, well, this is school. You need to do school. If they're having a bad day, I give them the space that they need. And I think that's super important when you're dealing with students who are coming from all types of backgrounds where things at home might not always be the best. Yeah, you know, that's such a fascinating way of describing it. And frankly, I mean, I know you. this is your first year at the school that you're at right now. So it's sort of a confusing time to assess what a normal amount of trauma is in a school setting, because obviously it's heightened by COVID. Um, but I think, you know, one thing I heard when you were talking there is, is this idea of earning students' trust. And one thing I always noticed when I was working with students with trauma is naturally they had a little bit of a guard up often because they had been through some really challenging stuff. And it wasn't just automatic that they were necessarily going to trust me or, or think that I had their best interest in mind. Um, and they they were going to make sure that if they were going to sort of share some of their challenges that they were facing or be sort of vulnerable, that they were going to share that with people who would legitimately have their best interest in mind. And it sounds like you're kind of dealing with, um, you, you dealt with that journey this year with understanding that, you know, trust truly has to be earned. Uh, certainly with students who have been through challenging circumstances. It's it's an interesting and challenging reality. Kate, um, I know that this is kind of a topic that you've been spending some time studying at the Modern Classrooms Project and really digging in from the research end of wanting to make sure that we really pull out some of the core ideas that are important to understand about supporting students with trauma. Can you share a little bit more about both the timely nature of this conversation and the diverse set of needs students have, not just academically, but socially and emotionally? Absolutely. I think it is always a difficult time of year. The, I had a particular student who I was close to. I know when I was when I was teaching who the holidays triggered. This is just one example. The holidays triggered the absence of her brother. You know, her brother had actually been killed a few years before. And every Christmas since then was very difficult um, for her family to the point where really the home was a really unpleasant place to be. And I think for some of us for, and for some of our students, you know, we are so ready for winter break and teachers deserve this rest and they are tired um, this year, I think more than ever. Um, and our students need the break too. But for some of our students, uh, when they don't have school um, over the break uh, or when they don't have the structures of school, they are they lose a lot of normalcy and that can be really tough that can be tough because they are missing the resources that schools give whether that's a chat with their social worker or you know consistent breakfast and lunch but it's also mental structures something to do seeing peers hopefully a teacher who cares so this period can be really difficult at modern classrooms in my role as head of teaching and learning I have been doing a lot of research on trauma-informed teaching and trauma-informed teaching practices, kind of thinking both from a social, excuse me, social emotional angle, but also a pedagogical angle. What does this mean? And what can we do specifically as modern classrooms educators? How can we best leverage the fact that we are, we emphasize self-pacing in our classrooms, the fact that we emphasize mastery-based learning? And I think there's a lot to be spoken of, really. When I was doing this research, I frankly thought back to uh, the students we were serving, frankly, when you and our co-founder, Rob Barnett, were kind of codifying this model. Uh, we were very much responding to students who had endured trauma, many of them. Um, we served in a school where 100% of our students were considered economically disadvantaged. And I know that you and I regularly saw students in crisis. Um, we've kind of talked about the point that what we loved about teaching with a blended self-paced mastery-based approach was that for the first time, it felt like we didn't have to abandon the student in crisis, you know, the, the kid who comes in with his head down and he's clearly upset. Um, in the past, we had to just keep on teaching, keep on teaching the other 20, 24 kids in the room. Um, with this way of teaching, we could kind of, ever, all the class could go on for everyone else while we could go attend to his needs, um, which was a game changer for, for us, I know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talk about this all the time. I still have like horror stories myself of these moments in the classroom where I knowingly prioritized the order of the classroom over the social emotional needs of my students, not because I was like a villainous teacher, but just because I didn't know what mattered more and how to manage both. And 
I felt like, am I calling the student out for something they're struggling with and disrupting the larger learning environment? It was just such like a, it felt like I was just operating in a space where there was no easy, right, available solution and everything I was doing was wrong. And it all boiled down to this idea that I was treating the structure and organization of my classroom as sort of like a, a structure that worked against my ability to support my students' needs. And that was so, so dangerous, both for students and for my ability to feel like I was an effective educator. So it constantly drove me nuts. Um, and I think this is a struggle that so many educators face. And frankly, just like the environment you're in, Monty, right now, and the environment we were in, Kate, when we were teaching, when you have a very high proportion of students who are experiencing trauma, this is a daily exercise, right? A daily exercise of figuring out how to create the conditions for our students who are frankly struggling the most to feel safe and feel like they can grow. Um, and that's super challenging. And I think it's interesting that we're, we've already talked about, uh, talked about poverty and there is a research link with sadly with a child's parental socioeconomic status and their childhood traumatic stress exposure. Um, to survive poverty, you know, people often become resourceful, resilient, very flexible. Um, so that's not to say that, you know, experiences are not unique. Um, but sadly, we do see poverty has many complex factors. You know, there's a lack of monetary resources and also, also structural explanations. So, you know, you not only lack the material resources to, let's say, buy the groceries, but the structural um, angle of that could also be there's not a grocery store in the neighborhood or it's unsafe to walk at some times of night to get there. Um, so it, it's, it's, when we talk about trauma, it can come from so sadly from so many areas from our kids, but um, our our kids who are living in poverty, you know, they they do experience this in unique ways. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dig into sort of how this manifests in the actual classroom, and I'm extremely sort of intrigued to hear what you're experiencing at the moment, Monty, sort of being in the classroom and seeing this happen live, but. Kate, can you talk a little bit more in your research about this distinction between what it actually means for someone to be experiencing trauma versus being a trauma-informed teacher or engaging in trauma-informed teaching? It kind of reminds me of data-driven versus what data is, right? It's like we merge the two like they're the same things, but looking at data is not the same thing as being a data-informed educator. So can you clarify that distinction for the listeners? So it's, it's interesting. In the 90s, uh, researchers kind of talked about type one and type two trauma, but we're seeing really interesting um, research come out of Harvard Center on the Developing Child, and they talk about categories of childhood stress. You know, so we have positive stress, which is normal events, you know, first day of school, and that's good for us. Tolerable childhood stress. This is a more severe event with a longer lasting repercussion. Um, so maybe the death of a caretaker or a troubling injury. Um, if these are met with, you know, age appropriate supports, um, a child's brain can recover from tolerable stresses. But where we start to worry about kind of neurological development, which is going to be relevant, I think, to our conversation as, you know, when we talk about trauma as educators, um, when we get into toxic stress, this is, this is where we're entering some pretty dangerous territory in terms of development. So when a child has frequent or prolonged exposure to adversity and they don't have the adult support that can, that can help them get out of this, you know, um, that's where we consider toxic stress. And toxic stress, for those of us who have heard of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, so this is kind of where we would talk about, these would be like the ongoing, chronic, extremely prevalent ACEs. Um, so chronic neglect, chronic physical or emotional abuse. Um, it can be having a caretaker who struggles with mental illness or substance abuse. It can be having an incarcerated family member. Um, with And again, it's just that idea of this is prolonged and it's not met with adequate adult support. Um, so that kind of distinguishes tolerable from toxic. So when we talk about trauma in the classroom, you know, it's kind of important to acknowledge that 
actually traumatic events, sadly, are they can be pretty prevalent. Two thirds of adults reported to the the CDC that they had survived a traumatic uh, a traumatic event as a child, um, whether that be uh, an instance of abuse or a natural disaster. Now, where we really, really start to worry again, though, kind of going back to that conversation about, you know, uh, about childhood stress is when this turns toxic. So the prolonged, the ongoing without adult intervention. Sadly, um, when we look at children who have endured uh, four or more of those ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences, that's one in six adults report having four or more in their childhood. And girls and children of color are at greater risk of being among these uh, adults who will later report four or more ACEs. So that's kind of a look about like what it means to survive trauma. You know, it can be, it can, it can be kind of ambiguous, but I think for the sake of neurological development, let's think about it in those buckets of positive, tolerable, and again, toxic stress and trauma informed teaching, like most good things with teaching. It's not a silver bullet. It's not one strategy. It's not one thing. I would say it's really, um, it's a, it's a mindset. It's a, it's the building of a classroom culture and it's a pedagogical shift to not only acknowledge that students in your classroom have endured trauma, this affects them physically, emotionally, neurologically, academically, um, socially, but it's also a willingness trauma-informed teaching, I would say, to make adaptations to your teaching practice, to your classroom culture, uh, based on the needs of your students. And, you know, we really, we really see that with so many of, so much of trauma-informed teaching, these are great teaching practices that are going to benefit students who have not experienced trauma. (laughs) Um, So there's, it's, it's work, but it's worth it. Yeah, no, that's, First of all, a fantastic summary of both the research and the meaning of trauma-informed practice and comes back to this core idea that there just is no easy answer or simple answer. It is a mindset shift. It's about understanding that you're teaching a whole child and that whole child has a much bigger and broader challenges than the things that we look at every day, like the content that we teach and the 21st century skills that we're building in the moment, which I think is really, really important to remember throughout this conversation. Now, Monty, can you talk a little bit about how you've seen trauma manifest in your classroom? Um, because I think, you know, ultimately the challenge here that we're really digging into is as an educator, what do you see and what do you do? So can you talk a little bit about what traumas look like for you this year? Of course. Um, so I feel like I have a unique perspective because I have the pleasure or displeasure, depending on who you ask, of teaching um, three, you know, virtual sections, and I teach three brick and mortar sections. And, and so some of the the stuff that I'm seeing is similar across both. And then there are others that are specific only to my virtual students, and then things that are specific to my brick and mortar students. One of the things across the board that I'm seeing is like a high amount of absenteeism right now. It's a chronic issue that we're having at school. Kids are just absent. Um, I, I find that students are more absent on the virtual end right now. There are some students that have been on my roster all year who nobody at the school has been able to track down, which is extremely concerning because this kid is enrolled at the school and no one's been able to like get in touch with this kid. And as an educator, I find that very concerning because where is this child? Um, brick and mortar, same thing. You know, students will be there one day of the week. They're gone two additional days. Then maybe they come on a random Thursday and then Fridays across the board just seems to be a day that none of them show up. And I've had conversations with a few of them of like, what are you doing on this Friday? And they're just like, I don't know. I, you know, I just didn't feel like it today. Or I just, you know, wasn't in the mood or my mom just told me I didn't have to come. You know, the, the, the random stuff that they tell me, you know, it, it was extremely shocking to me. The first, the first couple of Fridays that we had of this school year, half of them are gone. And I thought, that I was crazy. I was like, is, is it a holiday? What, what's the situation? And that's just been a problem that we've had all year. So I've had to learn to try to, you know, kind of reverse what I'm doing to make Fridays kind of be a day where we don't do a whole lot because I know they're not going to be there. The other way we are having a huge issue with, you know, fighting and just anger right now that I have some students that are just extremely angry. And some of it, I think, is they're a little misunderstood. 
I, I think the way sometimes that we approach students like this who tend to have outbursts is not always the way that they want us to approach them. And so I feel like, you know, with particular students who I've been having a lot of issues with right now of communicating, it's just because I need to learn a better way of communicating with them as well as they need to learn a better way of communicating with me. Um, because I feel like a lot of times this, when when I am having issues with kids exploding in class or you know, I, I've had an issue where kids have walked out of my class this year or, you know, said very not nice things to me during class. You know, in the moment, I feel very heated and hot. And I'm just like, who does this child think they are talking to me like this? I'm an adult. But, you know, after some time, you know, I really think through how I interacted with this student. And it's sometimes in a place of annoyance. You know, I approach them annoyed. And I'm sure that they're used to all of their teachers being annoyed because, you know, I think sometimes they, they are a little misunderstood. And so I, we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of tardiness just at school, kids skipping. And so I think on some level, students needed the socialization that comes with being at school and seeing their friends. But on the other hand, we're also in the middle of a pandemic. And I think students are very much in a place where they feel overloaded with information and they feel overloaded with what we're telling them to do. And so we're having a huge issue with tardies and just really getting kids to stay in class and, you know, using their time effectively. Um, and I think the other thing, and this was something that was shocking to me, is 80% of my students, it feels like, at the very beginning of the year told me, I'm not good at science. I'll never be good at science. Don't make me do science. And this was the rhetoric. And for some of them, this is still the rhetoric. They say science is hard. No one's ever cared about me passing science. Why should I try in science? And that was heartbreaking to me because to me, I'm extremely passionate about science. I love science. And I think that science should be every kid's favorite subject because it's science and it's so hands-on and it has potential to be so amazing. And it was truly sad to me that students had such this low self-confidence in their ability to do science that some of them, even now in December, are unwilling to even try because I think that they've just constantly gotten the communication that science is hard for them and they've always failed science. And so they're like, I always fail science. Why should I try when I'm going to fail? Um, and so that was also extremely shocking to me and something that I'm still figuring out how to work through with some of them um, because some of them not, are not doing anything and I don't know how to get in, how to get through to them. Right. And I think, I think I'm hearing a few things there that I think are really critical to unpack. I mean, the first is sort of avoidant behavior which I think is oftentimes, I think you said this, easily mischaracterized, right? Because a student skips class or doesn't want to do work, shows up late. And the automatic assumption is that they're sort of like making the choice to do this because they want to. And I think one thing I learned very quickly as an educator supporting students who are experiencing a high amount of trauma is they're oftentimes avoiding things because it A, reinforces the things they're insecure about, or they're just not in the mental or emotional state to be told what to do and how to do it and to learn, right? So the easier thing to do, obviously, and frankly, the only option it feels like is to not go to class, right? Or put their head down. Um, and it kind of, as you said, Monty, around sort of changing the way you communicate with the students in the same way that, you know, sometimes you feel like your students need to change the way that they communicate with you. And that's a key element, right? It kind of speaks to this idea of de-escalation, where like if a student is constantly experiencing trauma, the primary goal should actually be to de-escalate, right? It's regardless of the circumstances, whether they're furious, whether they kind of have an outburst, whether they're engaging in avoidant behavior. It's like the more you push, you're not actually going anywhere with this issue, right? It's actually, you want to articulate that there's a safe place and it's not urgent and there's no emergency, right? And instead that they can just pause, take a deep breath and sort of access the material, the content, the resources, the learning experience when they're ready. And I think that that's a key distinction that I'm sure you've probably seen in your research, Kate. Yeah, definitely. There's there's so much, Monty, of what you're saying that I'm nodding my head. Like, I, yeah, I know, I know. Um, our, you know, our kids who've survived trauma, um, when you mentioned like the absenteeism and, you know, there are 
it, it's exhausting, you know, to kind of, it's to be on that high alert status, to be highly reactive. So I think sometimes it's just it's fatigue. Trauma, of course, can cause, and that toxic stress can cause other physical illnesses and mental illnesses that students can face throughout a lifetime. Um, when you were talking about fighting, I was, I remember, yeah, like kind of that, um, experiencing like problematic interactions with peers and difficulty self-regulating. And there are brain-based reasons for why all of this exists. And I remember seeing it in my own classroom and, um, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. I really, I really thought about how, not only how this impacts the individual student. So, you know, we know that they are more likely to be absent from school when they are in school, there could still be missed instructional time because there was a fight and now they are in an assistant principal's office, or perhaps they are again, like Kareem lifted up and not in a mental place to meaningfully participate and learn today. And, you know, I think we've all been there as adults, even those of us um, who haven't experienced childhood trauma. I, you know, I can't imagine what that's like for a kid or an adolescent sitting in a desk being told like, you know, this is like, learn now, listen to me, um, how triggering and frustrating that would be, you know, so we have, you know, all of this kind of, you know, there's a sense of alienation the kid has from their peers, from their teacher, from the school community, there's a lack of academic growth, you know, we don't have as much social confidence. But, you know, oftentimes, this can manifest in disruptive behavior. And we see that, and that can have impacts on other students. They can miss instructional time, you know, they can get frustrated and they can say things or have reactions that further trigger um, the, the original student and further disrupt class. And then I think, you know, over time they can, they can grow kind of a distrust in their own school or distrust in the teacher. And as the teacher, <laughs> I, I think we've all talked about this at various points, just that mental and emotional and even physical impact that can have on us. You know, it's, it's hard to be hypervigilant and children who have, who have survived trauma tend to be highly reactive and have difficulty self-regulating. And we can put resources in the show notes about, you know, what the brain-based reasons for that is. But we, you know, we often see then in the classroom, this teacher is trying to do so much to kind of keep a lid on the class, so to speak. And, their reactions can further trigger the student who's in crisis if they're if they're not taking a de-escalation strategy. Um, and even if they are trying their best, the student could really be in a rough place. The teacher can be fatigued. The teacher can feel very discouraged. And this, of course, can eventually lead to burnout. And we know that teachers who um, who teach special education students, teachers who teach newcomers or emergent bilinguals, um, teachers in Title I settings, they do leave their schools and the profession at faster rates than, than their peers in more affluent settings who teach um, children of a higher socioeconomic status. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I do want to sort of lift up and, and talk about too is because I think this, this, this at times disproportionately affects male students is this idea of anger and the manifestation of anger oftentimes to mask sadness and pain. Uh, you know, ultimately, a lot of times students and particularly male students just don't feel like they can show a negative emotion outside of anger. And it is such a challenging reality because when you are experiencing a lot of trauma and pain, you start to funnel all that energy and all that emotion into anger, which one could argue is probably the most destructive way to funnel it, right? Because it can lead to real negative outcomes for both the student and the larger environment. And, you know, I certainly saw this quite often. I know we all have seen this quite often in the classroom. And it's such a tricky beast because when a student is experiencing trauma, it then manifests in anger and then the student acts out. It's very difficult in the moment, either peer students or adults, to recognize that the source of this issue is actually trauma and that de-escalation is the next step and not sort of an escalation and getting frustrated with the student for being angry. Right, because that's often the gut reaction that anyone has when they see someone act out and engage in sort of behaviors that are showing sort of anger or aggression, right? Our gut reaction is to be mad back. 
And that obviously is the most destructive way to respond because it's only going to elevate the situation and make the student feel worse. It reminds me of the first few times that I broke up fights as an educator because when you do that and you actually literally are holding a student when they're at their most tense moment and feeling the most amount of crisis, you truly realize the degree with which they're actually out of control. Like they don't, they can't feel that they're shaken. Yeah. Right. So there's a level of intensity and emotion that they're feeling that they're not able to restrain all that emotion in the moment. Right. So when you try to kind of like stop a kid from getting angry or try to use sort of aggressive approaches to reduce someone's own feelings of anger, it's the complete opposite. It's almost operating like the assumption that the kid could just flip a switch and be all right or calm down, yeah. right? And when you realize that that's actually not what's going on, um, it totally changes the way you think about how you support students in trauma and students in crisis. And it's really challenging, right? It's so, so difficult. And educators face this every day, right? Because it requires an, an unbelievable amount of calm and an unbelievable amount of patience um, because sometimes the behaviors that you see are some of the most frustrating if you're an educator, which I think kind of lends itself to why I think it's important to talk about how the modern classrooms project model in particular helps us as adults in the room respond to students in crisis. Um, so kind of, I want to hear from both of you, Kate and Monty, about sort of why the model positions you to deal with these moments that are just uniquely challenging better than using a traditional approach. Monty, why don't you share a little bit about this first? Yeah, I think one of the the greatest parts of this model is that students are able to work at their own pace. And so, especially with students who are absent a lot um, in the past, and I mean, sometimes even now, I ask myself, how am I supposed to get this student caught up? You know, I had a student recently who, he missed three weeks of school. And I was stressed out because, you know, grades were due and I didn't know what to put. And, you know, I was able to pull him aside and I said, hey, can you begin working on these things? And, you know, we can begin to get you caught up a little bit. And that wasn't something that I necessarily could do in the past. When I was doing everything whole group, that student who had missed three weeks was now sitting in class listening to me talk about a lesson three weeks after what what he last remembered us doing. Um, And it, it just kind of it doesn't work. Because obviously things build on each other. And if he's missed three weeks, he's not going to understand what we're doing now, which further, you know, goes into this cycle of him being behind. But now with the Modern Classrooms Project, I'm able to sit down with him and say, hey, here's what you missed while you were gone. Let's start working on some of this work. So now I'm not expecting him to necessarily start off with the, the work three weeks later. I mean, I want him to get there eventually, but we, we build to that. I can start him off with the stuff that he last remembered and work our way through that. And then if he ends up being absent again, he now knows what he needs to do to get caught up. I think the other really beautiful thing about this is oftentimes in this model, I also get time to kind of be to myself. As already mentioned, like sometimes as an educator, things are exhausting. And I think we talk a lot about, you know, trauma in the classroom. And sometimes teachers themselves are coming in with their own trauma because maybe they grew up in a very traumatic background. And so sometimes I find myself needing a break to, you know, stand in the back and kind of just be in my own head and cool off or, you know, do whatever I need to do. I've always been like an internalizer. So whenever I'm having kind of a moment, I, I kind of go into myself. And in the past, when I've had things happen in class that, you know, in all actuality trigger me, I haven't ever been able to cool down. And so I found myself in the past just reacting and I'm reacting to what's going on and I'm reacting to what they're doing. And if a kid is negative to me, I'm reacting to the negativity. But now sometimes whenever we're going, you know, students are starting to trigger me a little bit. I now have a little bit of space to kind of be like, I need everybody to, you know, work on their individual tasks. And then I take a few moments for myself in the back of the room and I cool myself down. I choose not to engage and I choose not to respond negatively, which I think has also helped with me continuing to build relationships with students. Because in the past, I might have said something to a student that just breaks all the trust that I built. Because, again, it takes one instance to break their trust. Now I take the time to cool myself down and I can have a way more reasonable and rational conversation with a student after five minutes of cool down um, and kind of thinking through the situation. 
Um, and I think that's also so important for educators as well as students to have that that time to cool down and really reflect on the situation. Monty, I love so much of what you're saying. I can echo that ability to catch students up after an absence and, you know, the idea that instruction doesn't have to stop when one student is in crisis. I really love your point about about caring for the teacher and this being a sustainable system for teachers. And it's interesting. I always used to, you know, in the classroom, I used to like say like, please do not bake me cupcakes. Like do not, I don't really need, um, you know, I don't really need a, a PD on self-care. Like I, I, I know that yoga and bubble baths are there for me. Thanks. I would really prefer more sustainable systems for teachers. And I found when I shifted to the modern classrooms project model, it was that for me, just what you said. I had that opportunity to step back, to reflect, to, I could, I could sometimes, not only could I take a minute for the student in crisis, they could step out with them, but I could also kind of take a minute at my instructional nest or my mastery check table and reflect and kind of get myself right before I, um, before I answered a student question or helped a student with something else. Um, and that was, that was really key for me. And, you know, one of the things that I think isn't necessarily talked about enough is the idea that part of a teacher's theoretical goal or job is to create a responsive learning environment. But if a teacher is stressed, how in the world are they going to help reduce their students' stress? It doesn't actually make any sense, right? If I walk into my classroom and I'm incredibly anxious about making sure that all my kids are seated, engaging in the do now, and if they're not, I'm flustered. Well, now I'm already coming at this like I'm putting on a performance, which is inherently stressful. So when another kid comes in, and they're stressed and acting out, we're meeting stress with stress. And that's a disaster, right? So I think one of the things that I often found so pleasant about the modern classrooms model is a lot of times we create a sense of sort of emergency and urgency in a classroom because we're obsessed with order. If we're all supposed to be seated listening to the teacher at the whiteboard and five kids are not, it's almost like a baby emergency. Like, what are you doing? Fix this. Figure it out. And if your admin's in the room, it's like triple the emergency. It's like, oh my goodness, 25% of my students are disengaged and my admin is observing me. And that's so anxiety producing for the educator. And it also creates a sense of emergency and urgency for the room and the students that doesn't need to be there, which is such a disaster for taking care of students with trauma. Because they feel like every day and every moment of their life is emergency and an, urgency and an urgent thing that they have to act on. And we're almost trying to make sure the kid feels like there's less of those situations in front of them. And a lot of times we do the exact opposite with a traditional model, which is make it feel like this is so urgent and it's such an emergency. You have to learn how to calculate slope of a line by the end of today. And if you don't, disaster is going to happen. I'm going to call your parents. And it just really isn't conducive for reducing student anxiety and stress. It actually does the opposite and oftentimes in times that it doesn't need to. So for me, it was always about being able to say to a student who I could see was struggling, hey, just take a deep breath. Like Nothing's going to happen. There's no emergency at the moment. I mean, there may actually be an emergency for the student that is totally out of my control, but I will certainly not be adding to the emergency. There's nothing. Or You can take a walk. You can take a breath. You can have a seat. And I think there's something, and I think both of you have said this, so powerful about the student knowing that if they choose to go take a walk or take a seat or calm down or have a one-on-one conversation with me, it is not going to cause a scene or just stop the whole learning environment because nothing's worse than experiencing distress and feeling like everyone's watching you, right? That's just a miserable feeling for anyone. So I think those are some of the most powerful ways that the model creates conditions for kids to feel like they can de-escalate both on their own or with the support of the teacher and not feel like the larger learning environment is going to break down in front of them. So I want to kind of talk next about particularly this idea of building relationships with students because, I mean, Kate, I kind of want to hear first from you what some of the research says or what trauma-informed teaching sort of has to do with relationship building. Is there a clear connection here? And are there goals that folks should have as educators supporting a high percentage of students with trauma um, around sort of relationship building? 
Absolutely. Relationships can be an absolute game changer for students. You know, um, again, just another opportunity for positive age appropriate adult interaction. Um, This can be really critical to students who have survived trauma. Just that consistency and feeling loved, they're, they're essential for brain development. And our, even for the high school teachers listening, you know, our prefrontal cortex is that's not that's not fully developed to learn our mid 20s. So while those early years are really important, high school teachers, you're really important too. You know, we we when we feel loved and supported, you know, we release hormones in our body that are are more helpful and conducive to learning um, and memory and attention than the hormones we're reducing when we are really, uh, when our body's in a stress response. So from all levels, the building those relationships is is key. In my classroom experience, I, f- I loved the fact that, to echo what so many people on this podcast have said time and time again, is I got more FaceTime with my students. And I, I could talk one-on-one, I could pull, pull small groups, which was really important to me. And I think also just uh, this message of, I, I care about you too much to leave you behind was the beauty of self-paced and mastery-based learning to me. This idea, like, like Monty said about the student who was gone for three weeks, I think we communicate a lot of love and we can help build a relationship with a kid when we say, okay, you've been gone. I'm really glad you're back. And let's get you on a video and get you the work that you need from, you know, where you were when you left rather than I think kind of the educator reaction that sometimes like, Oh, okay. Yes. I know. You know, I know my, my holistic educator self is very happy to see this student walk in again, but God, it's been three weeks since they've been here. What am I supposed to do? I didn't have that reaction anymore once I kind of shifted to this self-paced mastery of age approach. And I think they're, and our students feel, they, they feel that love when we are making things accessible for them. Yeah. You know, Monty, it kind of reminds me of when you were talking about sort of kids constantly feeling like a failure, right? Like you were saying that kids just kept coming to your classroom and saying they were bad at science. Mm, yeah. And you got to like wonder why that's happening, right? Like what's driving that? And it reminds me of this idea of if you use a fixed pace traditional approach to teaching, kid experiences trauma, misses six lessons, they come back. Well, you're like, thank you for coming. Here's lesson seven. I mean, how are they not going to feel like they're bad at science, right? Because they're going to look at lesson seven and be like, I have no idea what this is talking about. And now I have no way of sort of reaccessing my content and no on-ramp to success. So I must be a failure. So I think one of those most powerful relationship builders in the model is actually when you get to be able to go to a student and say, hey, there's an on-ramp for you to re-engage in this content. I know you haven't been here for a while, but like this is where you start and and you could start feeling successful pretty early, right? Because you can say that, but if the kid can't feel successful, at least within a shorter, short-ish span of time, then the on-ramp doesn't really work. And I think that that's one of the most important elements of the model being supportive of students that are struggling with trauma. I want to talk now uh, about sort of how educators can actually directly leverage this. Because I think when we talk about it, it's easy to talk about it after our, we had sort of like cultivated a mature modern classroom. And when I say mature, I mean like we had gone through the trials and tribulations of rolling it out for the first time and figuring out what it means to not be the teacher at the front of the room and understanding sort of the steps you need to take to really build the student mindsets and the teacher mindsets and wrestling with this new shift. Um, and then sharing like, at that point, this is what it was like to be trauma informed. But what are some actionable steps? And I'd love to hear first from you, Monty, that you think some educators can take to start thinking about how they can be more trauma-informed in the classroom while using our model. If you're speaking to a teacher who had just rolled this out with their students, teaching a high proportion of students who are experiencing trauma, what would you say they should leverage about blended and self-paced and mastery-based instruction to be able to support their students more effectively? Yeah. So the first thing I would tell them to leverage is the extra time that they'll get like while they're working to pull them aside and talk to them. I try to have an individual conversation with like five to seven of them every day about something, the shoes they're wearing, the, they're really into these really elaborate 
jackets from the 90s. They're like they're like all 90s shows. So I talked to them about the show like, hey, have you seen that show before? What do you like about it? You know, I asked them about their family. If I know they've been absent, I'm like, hey, we missed you. Like what's been going on? You know, so I would say really leverage that extra time that you get sometimes, when, especially when they're just beginning to work, to just pull them aside and talk to them. It doesn't always have to be academic. In all honesty, those conversations are where you learn the most about them. And it's a true relationship builder. The other thing I would say to them is I would really tell them to constantly communicate to the students that the reason why you're having them do the things that you're having them do is because you care about them and you care about their success in the class. I try to make sure to say this as often as possible. Like, I care about your grade. This is why I'm harassing you for the 80th time about this assignment that we've talked about. This is why I'm asking you to do this again. This is why I want you to do X, Y, and Z. Because I think it's super important that they don't see it as you hounding them just to hound them. Let them know the reason why I'm bothering you, kid, is because I want you to do well. Because ultimately, we're in science to learn as much science as possible. So tell them that you care about them. Really leverage the time that you get to have them re-attempt anything that is not a, like a satisfiable grade. You know, I tell all of my kids, we aim for 80%. And they scoff all the time. And they're like, ugh, I've never made a B in my life. Or they say things like, getting a B in science is hard. But I make them work to that. If they don't get that 80%, I give them their work back and I say, hey, you're not quite there yet. Here's some things that you might want to consider. Can you redo it for me? And if they don't, then I'm really, as they like to say, extra. They say, oh, Miss Miss Water, you're really extra. I'm really extra about it. I say, hey, remember we talked about this two days ago. I need you to redo it because I care about you and I want your grade to be as high as possible. And I think telling them that is super important because they might not hear from people often that they're cared for. Um, and I think the other thing too, is to really leverage the student autonomy that students are going to get in this model and truly work on teaching them some of those, you know, organizational skills and really teaching them how to make good choices in class. Um, I really work very hard to get them one to understand their own grade. You know, they'll come to me all the time and they'll say, Hey miss, what's my grade? I don't tell them they're great. I say, hey, you know how to log onto the Chromebook. You know how to log on to Canvas. How about you look at your grade? You review what you think you need to work on. And then let's have that conversation together of what you can do to improve. Obviously, I could sit down and write down all the work they're missing and give it to them. But I think it's much more powerful because they have the time in this model for them to sit down and look at their own grade and really begin to understand understand grade weights. That's currently what my classes are working on of understanding the power of a zero and really understanding how everything is building together. And I think it's starting to become really clear to them and they're starting to make better choices in class and choosing which assignments they prioritize and which assignments they don't prioritize. And I just think student autonomy is so important in this model because um, you can teach them so much in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And Kate, can you share a little bit more about sort of what you would say to a, a, a teacher who's just rolling this out and wants to make sure that they're thinking sort of about staying trauma-informed and some of the ways they can leverage this? What would you say to them? I would say everything Monty said. <laughs> um, I think Monty really hit the nail on the head. I I think that, yeah, just being intentional about our messaging, why this class is mastery-based. Uh, why, you know, encouraging students to, you know, whatever we can to get them to, to track their own progress, to plan, to kind of foster these study habits or executive functioning skills that are frequently being talked about today, you know, essentially like prioritizing, staying on track, problem solving, self-reflection, you know, these are all part of executive functioning and um, whatever we can do that be that a student, like a student facing progress tracker where they're marking off their own progress, whether that be goal setting, um, you know, really, I think, I think that that is, that's key. And just kind of a point to that leveraging, leveraging like one-on-one -on -one time, leveraging student, student confidence, student growth. You know, I loved when I was in the classroom, it is a, just the little, the little things of, you know, like when a kid swears they can't do something and then kind of put it in and then they do it, you know, because you've just given them more time. They didn't have to do it at the same pace of their neighbor. Maybe, maybe they needed 30 more minutes. Maybe they needed an extra day. But when they get there, just really celebrating that, you know, like 
it's it's the coolest thing in the world when the student who the first you know the first quarter of school just was telling you he couldn't do something he couldn't do it and then you know second or third quarter he's on you to change his lesson on the pacing tracker right now um <laughs> just that celebration of like you did you did do it um and i think that uh, those little little things are are and i would encourage teachers who are just rolling it out to look for those little victories and to remember that, of course, um, a self-paced classroom is going to bring challenges, but it, it brings incredible, incredible opportunities. Yeah, I really, really like that. And, you know, one thing I'll add and one thing I often did with my students when I was really trying to think about how to ensure that they knew that they were in a safe place is I actually reinforced the fact that they were in control. Ultimately, we're creating student-centered classrooms. And a lot of times students with trauma are rarely in control. It's the fact that they actually have no control over the things that go on in their lives um, that are so challenging and traumatic. So just reminding them, hey, you're in control of your time. If you need to take a break, take a break. You're right to access the content. You can access the content. And ultimately, you'll determine how successful you are in their class. It's not out of your control. And I think it's a really powerful message to send students um, to make sure that they feel like they're in a safe place that isn't sort of erratic and something they can't handle, which I think is critical. Well, Kate and Monty, as usual, always wonderful talking about some really, really important topics with you both. Thank you both for jumping on today. Yeah. And I, if I can, we'll put them in show notes, but if any educator wants to learn more about this topic in general, or wants to learn more specific um, social, emotional, pedagogical classroom culture strategies in a modern classroom, uh, we're going to put a longer document and then a link to a recording of a recent webinar that you can check out. Perfect. Fantastic. Monty, thank you for joining us. Of course. I know this is an incredibly challenging topic. Um, to dig into. We're approaching the holidays. You might be listening to this while you're actually um, on vacation. So I hope that educators are taking some rest, taking some time to breathe. If you've been experiencing trauma, understand that it's okay to take the time you need and and get the support that you need to make it through this. This is a tough time for everyone involved. We hope that we can be a support system through this as well. And please, please get some rest. You can always access our materials at www.modernclassrooms.org, our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. We have our big Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator credential that is open and accepting applications until December 31st. So please complete that application if you want to be formally credentialed by the organization and get some cool, cool perks. Otherwise, enjoy the holidays, and we'll be back at it with episode 18 soon. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hi again, it's Kate. Teachers, this was a heavy episode, and we know you felt so much uncertainty this year. Here at the Modern Classrooms Project, we seek to empower you so you can better serve kids, even in the midst of this difficult time. Teachers are resilient and creative professionals, and in this week's love from our teachers, I'm happy to lift up Jennifer Fisher, a Modern Classrooms educator in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who exemplifies this resilience and creativity. She makes such cool instructional videos all, and I'm glad we get to hear from her. Hi, I'm Jennifer Fisher with Union Public Schools in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This year has definitely been a very hectic, stressful year for us teachers. Shout out to all my teacher friends, by the way. But thanks to the Modern Classrooms Project, my little corner of the world has actually been pretty smooth. Um, Kids love using the Modern Classrooms technique. They love taking ownership in their education and having more control. It's obvious my test scores are higher, student engagement is up, even students who are in quarantine still feel part of the classroom because of the Modern Classrooms Project. I love being available one-to-one for that student engagement, especially now during all of these stressful times. So thank you, Modern Classrooms Project, for giving me an awesome foundation in which to run my classroom. Remember, you can learn more about our work at our website, modernclassrooms.org, and you can learn the essentials through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. 
Be sure to follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for our latest updates. And if you're looking for more comprehensive support, check out the virtual mentorship program where you can get personalized support from Modern Classrooms teachers who are currently implementing the model. Have a great week and thank you for listening. Thank you.